0: Glad you are at Fellowship. And just to kind of add to what JJ was just sharing, if you are new, we want to make sure you know how to get connected as well. We have a website that's just an easy way to find out about our church. And you can put in some information if you want us to reach out to you or you want us to know you a little bit, we'd love to put that slide on the screen if we have that. Uh, There's a website, connectfellowship.com. And if you go to that website, you'll learn more about our process for getting connected. That includes... The first Sunday of every month, we have a class called Intro to Fellowship. If you haven't been to that yet, that's a great place to start. So hope you can make plans to join us the first Sunday of December to be a part of that. I also wanna just mention, Part of being a community together, a community of faith, is that we have an opportunity to, to combine our resources and open our hands to what God is doing here and around the world. So we would love for you to be a part of that through your giving. You can text to that number or you can go to that website. Um, we don't pass a basket, we don't do plates and that kind of thing. But what we do do is just remind each week that this is part of worshiping together, to, to open up our hands and allow God to steward our resources. The other thing I wanna mention that's unique to today is tomorrow starts Uh, about a 10 or 11 day of daily texts. So if you're part of our fellowship community, maybe you've never done this before, I wanna encourage all of us to be a part of this starting tomorrow. These daily devotions or daily devos as we're calling them are gonna lead us up through Thanksgiving and it's gonna prepare our hearts uh, with a, a mindset of gratitude. So. Even if you've done this before, I think you still need to re-register each time to get these texts. So right now, no reason to delay, just send a quick text message to that phone number that's on the screen and and in the, um The subject line, or in the message itself, rather, I guess there's no subject lines. I need to get my technology um, up to the 21st century here. Just type Daily Devo, one word, and send it to that phone number, and you will be automatically signed up. And then starting 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, we will be getting these texts together. They're very short. The whole opportunity is just for you in a few minutes to come before God, a little teaching from Scripture, and then a guided prayer that we'll have as our hearts are being prepared in this Thanksgiving season. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that starting tomorrow morning. All right, one of the themes of John's gospel, if you think about it this way, is that in the person of Jesus, God himself came into the world to bring light into darkness, to bring life into dead places. I was thinking about that and I thought about this illustration here. Anybody recognize uh, what, what one of these is? It's a snow globe, right? We all love and know the snow globe. Now, I don't know if you can remember the very first time you ever saw a snow globe. I cannot. I don't remember when it was, but... But if you could imagine seeing a snow globe for the very first time, and, and maybe picture yourself in, in your grandparents' home or something, and, and it's, it's with all the expensive stuff, because you know it's in this glass sphere, and so it's fragile, and, and you know, every grandparent's house has that room that you're not supposed to rough house in, you know, you're not supposed to run through the dining room or whatever it is, because that's where the fine china is, and you might knock over a plate, and just imagine yourself in a, in a room like that with the fragile things, and you come across the snow globe. You've never seen a snow globe, you don't know what it is, and you, you come up real close and look at it, it and all you can see is, wow, there's a beautiful, in this case, it's a city. There's a whole city inside that snow globe. Maybe you imagine yourself being a tiny little person inside the tiny little city, but you know you're not supposed to touch it. Well, your grandparent sees you eyeing the snow globe and with a smile on their face, they come up and they pick the snow globe up and they say, watch this they turn it upside down, they give it a good shake, and now you're really blown away. It's like, oh, wow, look at how beautiful that is. It has suddenly come to life. And I thought about it. This is what John is telling us. When God himself came into the world, he turned the world upside down, and he brought activity and motion and movement to a dead place, and beauty, And yet, if you were someone living inside this world when Jesus walked around, you might not always be comfortable around him. It's not comfortable for someone to come and shake some things up. And so Jesus came, he he said in the Beatitudes, I'm gonna give the earth to the meek, to the lowly, to the poor in spirit. They're the ones that are gonna inherit this earth and those that were comfortable and powerful felt threatened. We see this dynamic Wherever Jesus goes, he comes to bring life, he comes to bring motion, he comes to bring movement to dead things, and yet there is resistance everywhere he goes, people that were comfortable with the way things were. In our text this morning, you're going to see a microcosm of our world, just like in this snow globe. Every person you know, every neighbor, every friend, every family member, even yourself is in the text this morning is in the scene that we're gonna be reading from the Gospel of John. It's like a microcosm of the whole world and Jesus is gonna step into the scene and he's gonna shake things up. And we're gonna see where that leads in our story in ourselves this morning. So open your Bibles to John chapter five. And we'll pick up the text where Eric left us off last week. You know, Eric uh, taught the second sign in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John. And Eric did a really great job just reminding us what these signs are about. They lead to Jesus. They're signs that not just miracles, but they give the identity of Jesus as God himself in the flesh. And this morning we get to the third sign, which is a healing by a pool. We're gonna talk about the message, divide the text into three sections this morning. Put those on the screen if we can. Section one, the pool, be the first three verses. Part two, the one, referring to the one that Jesus healed, verses five to nine A, and then the reaction, nine B through 18, and that's how we're gonna break down the text this morning. So let's start with part one, the pool, and I'll read the first three verses of John chapter five. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Just a reminder, Jesus would go to Jerusalem at least three times a year because he, he was a, a Jewish male and Jewish males were commanded to go to Jerusalem for wherever they lived around Israel, they would gather for the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Pentecost. We don't know which of the three festivals or, or uh, ceremonies this, this was, we just know it was one of them. It was a Feast of the Jews It's described here in our text. Remember, every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem in the Gospel of John, he encounters tension. He encounters conflict. He encounters resistance. It's a reminder to us that darkness does not like light. The prince of this world, who is for now the enemy of God, is the prince of this world, does not want Jesus on the throne. So think about it this way. God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, the closer he would get to his throne, to his temple to his true home, the more resistance he encountered. Darkness does not want to give an inch to light. This particular text for many years, used to be uh, a place where critics of the Bible would go to to say, you can't really trust the accuracy, the, the historical accuracy of the Bible. And they would say, because there is no pool. We've never discovered a pool by the Sheep Gate. And the Bible in John chapter five says there's supposed to be a pool with five roofed colonnades, no doubt. And that would have been an unusual pool. The, the colonnades were the pillars that they used to put roofs around their, their pools to give shade. And so how could there be a five-sided pool? That was the only thing that they could imagine would have five colonnades you know, around the sides of a pool and they hadn't found any pool, much less a five-sided pool. And then they started digging even deeper and what they found was this. This is the pool of Bethesda and you can go visit it today. It was discovered, I think about 100 years ago or so. It's right outside the walls of the Temple Mount area. And uh, it was hard to find because people had built on top layers, and then built on top layers, and built on top layers. So when you go to Jerusalem today, you have to dig down about 30 feet to find the first century layer. And when they dug down 30 feet, they found evidence of a pool. It's hard to sort of see uh, in this picture. What was really remarkable about it was at first they found just one section of the pool, then they kept digging and excavating, and they found it was actually two pools next to each other, an upper pool that flowed into a lower pool. You can imagine this. The whole thing made a rectangle, but there was an additional colonnade in between to separate the upper pool from the lower pool, thus five colonnades. I love it when we discover things like this. And go ahead and take that picture off the screen. Now, why would there have been all these blind, lame, paralyzed people lying around this pool? Well, we actually get a hint about that from verse four. Look down at your Bible at... John five, verse four. That's a trick. There's no verse four in your text. Now, depending on which version you're, you're reading, you're utilizing, you might see a verse four and it has a little note probably in the margin that says something like this verse was likely not in the original text. If you're following along this morning in the, the, John, the purple John books that we gave you, you just don't see a verse four at all. What is going on here? Well, first of all, remember that the original text does not have verse verse numbers or chapter headings or anything like that. It was just writing. So people came later and they subdivided into chapters and subdivided into verses. And and at the time when they did that, there was an additional sentence in the text that they were using when they gave chapter and verse headings. Let me read to you what that sentence was. It, it, It reads this. They were waiting. The they refers to the people around the pool. They were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that was in a lot of Bible translations for years and years. And then as we've discovered more and better manuscripts, frankly, and and the, the older a manuscript is, the closer it is to the original, scholars started realizing the older manuscripts don't have that verse in it. They don't have that sentence in it. So what do you make of that? Well, the wonderful thing about the Bible, guys, is we have thousands of manuscripts and there's so much consistency in them. But every now and then you'll find a phrase or a little note that you'll realize, wait a minute, it seems like that didn't show up until AD 1000 or whatever the, the, the word was. What does that mean? Likely a scribe. When they were copying God's Word, they wrote a little note in the margin, a little editorial parenthetical comment. By the way, they believed an angel of the Lord would stir the waters, and that's what they're waiting for. And then the next scribe comes along, he sees the note in the margin, says, oh, he he must have just meant to put that in the text, but forgot it, so he must have written in the margin. So then he writes it within the text. And then the next copyist comes out, and they see it But if you can look back far enough, closer to the original, you can see what the original text said. And this verse was not in there. So what do we do with it? There's no reason to doubt your faith. We've got such confidence in the Bible. In fact, this kind of scrutiny of the text should actually build your confidence that what you're reading is so close, as close as we can possibly get to the original text. And so most likely, we believe this was a scribal addition, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. What I want to draw your attention to is just imagine Jesus coming on this scene, Jesus knowing that real hope is not in the healing of the water. You know, whether or not an angel ever did that or not, we're not quite sure. But we know that true healing's in Jesus. Jesus comes on this scene and he sees all these desperate people waiting for some miraculous thing that may or may not ever happen. I want to pause here and ask, can you see our world in the scene by the pool of Bethesda. Can you see your neighbors and family and friends blind, lame, and paralyzed? Probably not literally, but definitely emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Can you see them lying around pools of water hoping there might be some stirring of life? that will heal them. What are some of the pools that we tend to lie around in our culture today? And and I want you to interact with me around this. So let me try to ask the question as clearly as I can. What are some of the things in our culture that people go to for healing and happiness? Someone call one out. Vacation. Vacation, (laughs) absolutely, Luke. I love a good vacation, healing and happiness. That's good, all right, what else? Validation on social media, yeah, very good answer. That sense of like, I must be okay because I've got all these people that like me or that, that that are that are affirming what I'm writing. And social media, good. What are some other pools we go to for healing and happiness in our culture? Work. Yeah, for sure, a sense of validation, or a sense of um, uh, value, worth from our work. What else? A couple more. Money. Money source of security, source of safety, contentment, happiness, good. We could keep going, couldn't we? Here's, here's some that I wrote down just to kind of add to the list. Entertainment, man, sometimes we're so sick of the world around us, we just wanna kind of numb ourselves and just not really feel, and we just kind of can go on entertainment binges. Um, spending, you know, money was mentioned, but spending. Some spiritual experiences can kind of be like that in our, in our culture today. Health fads, you know, age-reversing treatments, um, mood-altering substances, Addictive habits, we have so many. Look around you and you'll see multitudes of people crowding around pools, putting their hope in flimsy things that promise life and healing in a desperate world. Can you see your neighbors and your family and your friends? Can you see yourself? Into this scene by the pool, desperate people putting their hope in something that may or may not happen for them. Into this scene steps Jesus Christ. And his attention fixes on one man. Look at verse five with me, we'll put this on the screen. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been already been there a long time, He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Two details I want you to notice about this interaction. Detail number one is this, the man did nothing at all to seek out Jesus. Jesus came to him. Last week's story that Eric taught, there, there was this rich, uh, you know, wealthy, this man of means who lived up in, in the northern part of Galilee and he came down to where Jesus was at Cana seeking Jesus hoping for a miracle for his son. This week's a different context, a different story. This man didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't even think to seek out Jesus. And even if he had wanted to seek out Jesus, he could not have sought out Jesus because he's paralyzed, lying by this pool. Jesus came to him. Jesus found him. Jesus saw him, went to him. This is pure grace. I want you to see in that little detail, yourself. This is the essence of the gospel. You did not find God, he found you. Your story is not a story of being smart enough or or aware enough or intelligent enough or working hard enough religiously to find God and earn some kind of healing, and acceptance from him. In fact, what happened in your life, if Jesus has encountered you, what's happened in your life is you were going along with your life, trying to find your own pools of water, trying to find hope and healing and other things. And Jesus met you there. He met you beside your pool. Think about this at the big, big picture level. What's the essence of the Christian message? Is it You know, ever since the beginning, mankind were trying to get to God and trying to get to God, and they finally got to God. They finally found God in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that the Christian message? Not exactly. The Christian message is God came to us. While we were lost, while we were dead, while we were in our sin, while we were blind, while we didn't even know enough, To ask him to come, he came to us and found us lying beside lifeless pools, not even knowing what to search for, much less having the strength to reach up to him. The Bible says this consistently. Listen to John chapter 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Acts 16, 14, describing Lydia, one of the very earliest followers of Jesus, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. By the way, that's some of your stories in the room. You had heard a hundred messages. You'd heard the gospel explained a dozen different times, but there was that one time when the Lord opened your heart to hear. First John 419 sums it up this way. We love God because he first loved us. God's the prime mover. God is the initiator. God is the one who comes to us. And so this is where I ask you, can you see yourself in the scene by the pool? Can you see yourself as the one Jesus came to? And for some of you, you would say, I don't think so. I don't feel that Jesus has come to me. Here's what I would say. If you believe you are searching for Jesus, take heart. That means he is searching for you first. If you are someone who would say, yes, yes, Jesus has come and he has rescued me and I know this. Don't forget, Jesus found you. You didn't find him. And when Jesus finds you, he always asks this question. And this is the second detail of the text I want you to pay attention to the question Jesus asks. Because when he finds you, this is the question he asks Do you want to be healed? What an important question. At first, you might think the same thing in the man in the story. What do you mean, do I want to be healed? Why am I here if I don't want to be healed? Do you see me lying by this pool? The man doesn't actually answer Jesus' question. Did you notice that? He he says, do you want to be healed? And and he doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. In other words, how, how can I be healed if no one's gonna help me, if no one's gonna get me there? And while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, even when I've tried and I've had someone to help me, there's others that get there first. Other people get in the way. seems like this man is thinking, Salvation for me, healing for me, lies in the pool. And if I don't have someone to get me to the pool, I won't be healed. And maybe he's thinking, perhaps this man talking to me now wants to help me get to the pool. Perhaps this man is thinking, this stranger who's asking me this question might be a nice guy. He might even be a means to my healing. He might take me to the waters of salvation. Tim Keller pointed out that what this man is hoping for is essentially the same thing we all start out hoping for when Jesus starts coming into our lives, when Jesus starts interacting with us. What does he mean by that? We all start off by seeing Jesus as a means to an end, not the end itself. So, this man is saying, maybe this Jesus guy will be the one that will take me to my salvation. I think this is true with all of us. I think Keller is right on that. I I think many people not only start there, but never know any different. Let me explain how this works. Typically, when people start paying attention to Jesus in their life, in other words, get back to church, maybe start praying, start reading their Bible. It's because something uncomfortable has come into their lives and they want God's help with it. They want Jesus to help them fix the broken relationship or or a career that is not going well or a lost dream or they're, they're getting older and their body is breaking down and they're like, I need some help. I'm hurting, I'm suffering. Maybe their family is out of control. Maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them Maybe there's a health issue, et cetera. And so they say, I need Jesus to help me move forward in my life. I need him to help me become whole. And guys, that's not a bad thing. That's just a starting place. And so in essence, we all start there, right? And, And what we're actually thinking, what we're really saying is wholeness for me is in that thing. It's in the relationship getting healed. It's in my child coming back to Christ. It's in getting married someday and I'm lonely and those things. And wholeness for me is in that thing. And if Jesus will help me get to that thing, will help me get down to the pool and be healed, then I want him in my life. We're all like that. So the man thinks maybe Jesus will carry me down to the water because it's the water that's gonna heal me. And Jesus basically says, I will not take you to the water because I am the water. So here's what this means for you and for me. Jesus is not quite content to be a means to our end. Some of you want... Jesus desperately to help you get something in your life. He, he may or may not. But I want you to think about it this way. If he loved you just a little bit less, he would be happy to carry you down to that pool to see if the healing waters of the pool actually work. If he loved you just a little bit less, he might be eager to say, yes, I'll heal your marriage. You got it. Yes, I'll bring your child back to God. Yes, I'll hear your career. Yes, I'll help you meet Mr. Wright or Mr. Wright. If he loved you just a little bit less, he may be quicker to answer those requests. Instead, what he knows is in me, Jesus would say, is fullness. It's not in the pool. Look to me, you don't need the water. I am the water. Jesus does not want to partner with you to make you more comfortable or more happy. Jesus wants to be your comfort. Jesus wants to be your happiness, your joy, your satisfaction, your fulfillment. He wants intimacy with him, connection with him, to be your life source until you see him face to face and are healed from the inside out. Now, there is one more part of our text. We talked about the pool, the one. We still need to talk about the reaction. It's a long section. We'll have to cover it briefly, but there's something important here for us. So let's read the second half of verse nine through verse 18. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Pause there for a minute. Sabbath is a day of rest. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Pause there for a minute. They had all these detailed rules about the Sabbath, and one of them is you can't move things from one place to another. In other words, you don't move on the Sabbath. You know, if you're, you would never plan your moving day on the Sabbath. And this guy has his bed, right? He has his mat. This is the place that he sleeps, you know? He's walking around, it looks like he's moving day for this guy, and they're like, what are you doing? Look, look what happens next, verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, I, this wasn't my idea. I was commanded to do this by a guy who rescued me, who healed me. They said, they asked him, verse 12, who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk? So who's the guy that told you to break the law? That's what they're caring about right now. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Keep going. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Oh my, pause there for a minute. Do you you feel the tragedy in this? You know, from our perspective, maybe it's easier to see than it would have been for them. Here they are in the microcosm of their snow globe, living life, things are kind of working for them, at least as far as they can tell. They're They're kind of on the positive side of life. They're the ones that have power. They're the ones that have respect. They're the ones that have validation. And Jesus comes, he turns upside down the snow globe and they say, it doesn't work that way. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews at the time recognized, yes, we rest on the Sabbath, but God is at work on the Sabbath, at least Things grow on the Sabbath, Um, babies are born on the Sabbath, people die on the Sabbath, There's, there's giving and taking, there's breath in and out, God must be at work. Jesus is saying, listen, my father is working, I am working. He was putting himself as God. So in the microcosm of life by the pool of Bethesda, we not only find hurting people, desperate people, broken people, we find ourselves there too, we also find another group, the group that Jesus would later call the blind guides of Israel. What a metaphor. The people that are supposed to be leading the way, the people that think they're leading the way and think they know where they're going are the truly blind ones not the ones lying beside the pool. No sooner had the celebration started for this man than these other men moved in who could not see the miracle because they were so fixated on their rules. Jesus knew that would be their reaction. Did you notice he told the man specifically, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus knew their Sabbath laws Jesus knew their reaction. What was he doing? Was he just trying to poke the religious leaders? I don't think so. I think he's giving them an invitation. I think this is an invitation of sorts from Jesus to the religious leaders. He's essentially asking them, are you willing to see the sign? Are you willing to see this not just as a miracle, but as something that points to my true identity as God in the flesh? Because if I am God, Jesus is saying, I have authority to turn the snow globe upside down. I have authority to act and move in ways that you wouldn't expect and that you might not be comfortable with and that doesn't feel like it fits your little box. Jesus' invitation to the religious leaders is this, will you dare to believe that God himself is among you? Doing something new, doing something disruptive, bringing light and life in movement dark places and lifeless places and that has implications for you as well here's the irony of this story the most religious people in this text so to speak were so sure they were on God's side that they missed God himself can you see our world in this scene can you see yourself in this scene Jesus's answer is this. My father is working and I am working. And that is still true today. Jesus is healing. Jesus is restoring life. Jesus is turning things upside down. Jesus is making people uncomfortable. Jesus is disrupting hearts. He is doing the father's work. Do you see the sign? Are you willing to let Jesus work? Especially in ways that may feel disruptive to your own heart. Are you willing to be off balance and let Jesus be God? Not just a cosmic Santa Claus or a genie in the bottle for you, but life himself, God himself in your midst. I wanna invite you to reflect on a couple of questions. I'm gonna invite Kurt up to play for us as we reflect. And, and while you're doing that, I also wanna invite you to take out your communion elements. We're gonna be celebrating communion in a moment, but before we actually eat the bread and drink the cup, I wanna invite you to reflect on these two questions. What are the pools you tend to lie beside in hopes of finding healing and happiness? What are they for you? It, it may be something that you know is wrong and sinful. It may be something that is not wrong and sinful by itself. But you've made it your life. You've made it your hope for healing. And, and maybe you've even come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you just fix this thing in my life, I'm all yours. And Jesus would say, I've got bigger plans for you than that. I am the water. And then once you've thought about that for just a minute, this question applies to us just as much as it did to this paralyzed man by the water. Do you want to be healed? Deep down, you know those pools do not have life for you. Do you want to be healed? Let's spend a minute reflecting on these questions. if you are someone who believes as as best as you know how that Jesus is life, then I want to invite you to take the bread and hold it in your hands for just a moment. We'll, we'll eat it together in just a moment, but let me say this about the bread as we hold this in our hands. Jesus, next chapter in John chapter six, Jesus will describe himself as the bread of life. And What in the world does he mean by that? He, he essentially mean there, there's a sense that 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 He's life itself is all that you need is in him. And, and for us, we're like, well, how can he possibly be all that I need? You know, I need a lot of other things. And Jesus would, would make direct eye contact with you and, and he would say, I am what you need. I am the bread of life. It's in me, fullness is in me. And what you hold in your hands now is it's just a token, but it's a powerful symbol. That points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus and reminds us that he is what we need. He is our bread. If you believe that, let's eat the bread together. Peel back the second layer, of the foil of the cup. In John chapter seven, Jesus said these words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink have sounded just as strange to them as him declaring himself the bread of life. What Jesus was saying is, there's no other source of water that will meet your need except for me. If you believe that is true this morning, then let's drink the cup together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace, his gift, his love. Thank you that he came to us. He found us lying beside pools. Pray that we would believe in deeper ways than we have. In Jesus' name, amen.